0: Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. We deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Horan.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Connecting the Docs. I'm your host, John Horan. And I've got two guests here with me today. First, the famous Josh Hager.
2: Or is it infamous? Thanks, John. Happy to be here.
1: No, I think famous. I think famous. And today we uh, would like to feature the work of one of our summer 2022 interns at the State Archives, Jonna Purchase. She spent the summer working at the Outer Banks History Center. And in a moment, I'll let her speak to her experience and particular collections she worked on. But first, I wanted to highlight a few of our upcoming episodes and series. Coming soon, we'll have a series on the Western region, including a discussion on mountain speak, where we learn a new dialect. Uh, we will also have a thrilling episode featuring another summer 2022 intern where we examine the life of Abraham Galloway. And that includes an interview with Dr. David Saselski, the author of Freedom of Fire, the definitive history of Galloway. But that's to come for today. We'd like to get to know John a little bit more.
3: Thanks, Sean. So I'm currently a master's student at Simmons University in Boston, where I'm in a dual degree program for an MA in history and an MLIS in archives management. I also work at Simmons Graduate Admissions Office, and I'm a blogger there on the Student Snippets blog, where I write about my experience as a graduate student. And in my free time, I work as a part-time reference librarian at Emanuel College and as a history teaching assistant.
1: Well, great. Thank you for that bio. And what about the internship? Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Yeah, so I was working at the Outer Banks History Center in Manio. It's located um, next to the Roanoke Island Festival Park, which was originally Ice Plant Island. And now it hosts uh, music festivals every summer and a bluegrass festival in the fall. And it's also a museum dedicated in large part to the first colonists to America. So I was working there at the History Center located in the park where I first learned about the Outer Banks History Center actually through this internship posting. And so there's a job posting board that my university keeps up to date for students. It was January, it's cold in Boston. I was looking for something to do over the summer and I thought, hey, it might be really nice to be in a much more coastal region for the summer. And so I was excited to travel to a coastal region. I was excited to work in a government archival setting. I've worked in university and museum settings, but I haven't had governmental experience. So I was excited for that. And I didn't really know very much about Manio or North Carolina. And so I thought it would be great to still to travel somewhere new and get to learn about another part of the U.S. while also learning more archival skills.
1: Yeah, that's I mean, that's great that you decided, you know, it's cold gray in Boston. Let's go to the beach. What do you think, Josh?
2: (laughs) I think that's a great idea. I mean, you're not going to find a better place, at least in North Carolina, and we're biased here, to go to for your summer vacation. But it wasn't a vacation. You did a lot of work. But hopefully you did get a chance to experience the Outer Banks in all its glory because it is an unparalleled natural environment. There's not much like it in the United States for sure.
3: Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. It was, you know, the archive has Monday through Friday hours. So it was nice to work during the day, work while it was really hot outside, and then be able in the evenings and on the weekends to also go and explore more more of the area and see the coast.
2: And what was the official name of the internship, Jonna?
3: Yeah, so it's the David Stick Summer Internship that's hosted by the Friends of the Outer Banks History Center. David Stick, again, I was learning so much, I didn't know very much about him coming in. But of course, he's one of the really famous historians Uh, Local historians from, from Manio, from the Outer Banks region, who is the son then of Frank Stick, the photographer and artist from the region as well. And the Friends of the Outer Banks History Center is a group of many are local historians as well. They're doing a book event later this fall, actually, and just other community members who are interested in preserving the history of the Outer Banks region. So they very kindly sponsor one intern every summer to come and work on a project.
2: That's interesting, because I know that, obviously, I'm, I'm based in Raleigh, as our listeners know, but I know that David Stick is, was instrumental in the origins of the Outer Banks History Center. His yeah. papers are with the State Archives, but his papers are housed in Manio, and he worked to make sure that his collection would be stored in his beloved Manio for the Outer Banks. Uh, so really, he was one of the pivotal figures in getting that place yeah. even off the ground.
3: Well, it was his papers and his library that actually seeded the whole collection. That's what started it. And it didn't start out either as part of the the state archive system. That was a transition that happened later, um, I believe, after he passed away. Mm -hmm. So yeah, without him, there wouldn't necessarily be a history center in Manio.
2: But we're fortunate to have one, you know, we have the Automatic History Center in Manio, as well as the Western Regional Archives in Asheville. So I think it's Mm -hmm. really great that we've got you know, the three facilities, we've got one in each of the different three identified regions of the state. But something I do want to clear up, since I am the government records description archivist, uh, one of the misnomers that people have is that they think that the county records for the Outer Banks are going to be at the Outer Banks History Center, like the county mm-hmm. records and the court records. That's not true. And they're mm-hmm. not, the Western ones aren't Western Regional Archives. Um, what kind of things did you work on, uh, Jonna? Because I know that you didn't work with the government records. They're here in Raleigh. So if you need like Dare County court records from the 50s and 40s and earlier, they're here. So what is out there besides the David Stick papers?
3: A ton of photographs. It's a very photograph-heavy collection, I think, in part because of David Stick, in part because of the photojournalist, Acock Brown. Um, we have a current donor as well, Drew Wilson, who has donated many photographs and is still donating. Or It's actually a very photograph- and, and negatives-slides-heavy collection, which was really interesting to learn about, but not necessarily what I worked too much with. The actual collection that I worked with are the John Wilson papers. And John Wilson is a prominent Manio citizen He was elected mayor of Manio in 1980 when he was only 27 years old. Um, He was both the mayor of Manio during the 80s and then again in the early 2000s. And in addition to that work on sort of a civic engagement um, and local government level, he also was a prominent architect both in Manio and throughout the Outer Banks. And he was really interested in historic preservation. So both um, older houses that had historical significance, making sure that as those houses needed repairs, or in some cases when families needed to expand those houses, making sure that the historical integrity of the design was preserved but also working to develop this architectural style that was um, fondly known as the Outer Banks vernacular. And so keeping the houses that were built looking more like early Manio and also working on some commercial building as well, making sure that businesses within Manio didn't look like you could drive anywhere in the state of North Carolina and see that business, but making sure that it really blended into the existing style and small town feel of Manio. And so I was brought into work with his materials, which we had divided up between sort of his government work as a mayor or as a commissioner of Manio, because he also served frequently as commissioner when he wasn't a mayor. Um, So we had that, we had his boards and committees. He was really instrumental in many different boards, um, including the, um, the Roanoke Island Historical Association, which is the governing body that works directly with the Lost Colony play. There was the Outer Banks preservationists. Um, he worked on all sorts of things, even the um, preserving of the wild horses and Corolla. Um, so, just a lot of different boards and committees really focused on the historical and ecological preservation of the Outer Banks region. So we had that as a section as well within his papers. We, of course, had all of his architectural files. So there are a lot of blueprints in, and we're going to, in the near future, be getting even more of those blueprints to go in with a lot of the more uh, nitty gritty design, communication, contracting materials we already have for his architectural files. And then we just have personal materials from him as well that really help to show kind of who he was and how he fit in and knew people within the community as well. And some of his personal projects like several of the inns that he either helped to build or that he himself ran while living in Manio. So I was brought in to folder that collection, which was originally in about 52 banker's boxes, which then in more archival terms, we calculated it out to be about 45 cubic feet of materials plus oversized materials as well. Um, So I was brought in just to take, you know, all of those papers that are just, you know, sitting next to each other in a box and try to make sense of them and put them into folders that fit into one of those four series that had been established and try to take out materials if we felt this isn't necessary, always trying to pay attention to if there's perhaps personally compromising information like bank account numbers that would need to come out as well, especially since John Wilson is still alive and many of his clients are still alive, so information that needed to to come out. Um, and then duplicates as well, anything that just was like, this is extraneous and for archival reasons we do not need to keep. And so that was initially the project that I was brought on to do, but then... It didn't take as long as was expected. I think I, for one, felt definitely like, I haven't gone through a collection this big. I don't know how long this will take. I want to make sure I finish it in time. So I had a lot of fire under me to make sure I finished in time, which then translated into finishing early. Um, So beyond just foldering the collection... Then um, I was able to sort and organize the materials, put them into their series, and then organize those series as well, either alphabetically or chronologically, depending on what made the most sense. Particularly like mere materials that are just dated by year, those those make a lot of sense to book chronologically rather than, than alphabetically by month, um, so that you can look at it through a whole year. So organizing all of those materials, refoldering, We ordered the 160 archival clamshells for, you know, kind of a a silly name for them, but the the clamshells that you put these folders into, which came in giant boxes. They were, that was a really fun kind of Christmas day type delivery. So then putting all the folders within those boxes, um, creating the labels for those those boxes so that now when someone comes in, the reference desk can go and actually know which of the 160 clamshells are needed to be pulled for that patron. Um, And then also working on the finding aid as well. And so most of that finding aid um, was written before I finished migrating the Excel spreadsheet over into the finding aid is kind of the last step that needs to be done. Um, And we're also waiting on the accession number, which is important as well for getting this into the system. So it really started out on, you know, just kind of the initial part of the archival workflow and then ended up being that I got to kind of see this collection all the way through um, to its end, which was really rewarding for me, especially since this is my first time working in an archive rather than a library. I really, I think I understand the process a lot more now, having gone through it myself.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, that's that's a tremendous amount of detail. And I think we'll have a little bit more to kind of dive into when we get into the papers. But going back to the beginning, you know, you're talking about, you know, you were brought on for these papers. But Josh asked the question of what's there, and you gave a little sense of that. But what was the first thing you did when you walked into the archives?
3: The first thing that I did really ended up being a bit of a curveball for me, because I was supposed to come in my first week and start working in the archive, getting the materials, learning how how the Outer Banks History Center did things. Um, And then the very day I had booked my travel accommodations to drive from my family's home in Texas to North Carolina. Like I booked my hotels, I had it all planned, it was gonna, you know, be a nice little road trip. Um, I actually got an email from the director saying there's been a COVID outbreak in the community housing that you're supposed to be living in, can you wait a week? Um, and fortunately, I was, I was able to, to change everything around. So really, my first introduction to the Outer Banks History Center and the first project that I worked on was with oral histories. I had mentioned that in my interview for the position that I was interested in working more with oral histories because I had written a paper on the use of oral histories and the acceptability of oral histories in archives for one of my Archival courses, and then I had also been studying oral histories about partition in India as well during one of my history courses that semester. So I was really thinking about oral histories and wanting to be able to engage with them. And while it was unfortunate I wasn't able to move out, it just so happened that I got what I wanted. And I was able to work with with some oral history materials. So the first thing I did was actually I indexed an oral history that had already been transcribed so that I got just kind of a sense of what they looked like. I was able to read it, um, see kind of the conventions that the Outer Banks History Center uses for its transcriptions. And then after I had indexed one oral history, then I was able to transcribe and index two other oral histories from different citizens, which aside from letting me learn just about oral histories, um, and to learn a little bit about kind of some of the conventions for a good recording of an oral history or understanding maybe some of the things a person transcribing a history might really want an interviewer to do or want in the setup in terms of of volume and, and things like that. I was able to actually learn a lot about the Outer Banks because, like I mentioned, I didn't really know anything about the Outer Banks except, hey, it's a, it's a, these are barrier islands, kind of, I'm on the coast. And so it actually let me learn quite a bit because the oral histories that I was looking at were mostly individuals who grew up, who were like young kids or teenagers in the 1920s. One oral history, it was a child in the 1940s talking a lot about World War II and about the different things that would wash ashore after submarine explosions and things. And so it let me learn a lot about what the Outer Banks looked like prior to today which complemented then the john wilson papers because manual in particular changed a lot in the 80s to the present and so because i had to stay and do stay home and do oral histories for a week it let me see kind of what it was like before all of that change happened so it provided some really nice context that i wasn't expecting for the collection i was brought on to do um but then it also helped a lot with place names. I had Google Maps open a lot while I was doing my transcriptions. And I'm like, I think this is what they said. The place, like it sounds like this. So so searching. So I learned a lot about geography. Um, I learned a lot about different senators and things in the areas that they came from because those names got brought up a lot. It was really nice too, kind of for getting my ear adjusted to the accent um, as well, because there are quite a few different accents um, throughout the region and just North Carolina's brand of Southern because growing up in Texas, I have my ear to like a Texas brand of Southern accent. So that that was really nice. But it really did help me to gain a sense of place and just to learn what the region was like, what it's like now. One of the, the favorite oral histories that I listened to was um, by Stanley Beecham, who he was a child living on the north end of Duck in Cathy's Inlet during World War II. And he was one of the children who got to go and beach comb. After submarines had unfortunately been blown up and then things had washed ashore, the Coast Guard always, they they cleaned what they needed to, and then they just let the kids scavenge for whatever they wanted. And so I remember listening to that, and that was really fascinating to me. And then he also talked a little bit about some of the bridges or the lack of bridges, um, which was really fascinating to me once I actually drove on bridges to get here. And so I actually have a clip of that, that interview with him talking about the bridges um, if you'd
0: like to play it. From that, I was transferred to a 95-foot patrol boat in the Norfolk Harbor, and then they transferred the ship to um, a 95-foot to Ocracoke. And I said, why are you sending me to Ocracoke? Oak I've never been there. That's a foreign country. They couldn't even come up to our area. There's no bridges or nothing. They went to Little Washington and places to get their groceries and Pepsi-Colas and mail. And... Uh, They said, well, you're you're native, and you know the water. I said, if
1: it's blue, it's deep. If it's gray, it's shallow. That's all I know.
2: (laughs) What a terrific clip. (laughs) I love it. If nothing else, listeners, if it's blue, it's deep. If it's gray, it's shallow. (laughs) Remember that. Words to live by.
3: (laughs) (laughs) exactly but it was small details like that like learning there weren't bridges and that the different parts of the Outer banks really in some ways were isolated from each other or connected to other places based on how easy it was you know perhaps to sail to them and to to get their pepsi cola and all the essentials and so it was small things like that that at the time i was doing the oral history i'm like oh that's interesting like i'm learning but then once i actually was living in the region i realized how well that prepared me to kind of understand why manual looks the way why the outer banks looks the way that it does just based in terms of accessibility in the last 100 years
2: so i want to point out for our listeners who might not be as familiar with the geography of the outer banks when he says the folks in ocracoke had to get to little washington for groceries little washington is in turrell county Which is spelled T Y R R E L L, which is not at all all how you think it sounds, but it is. Ocracoke is down near the southern end of the upper outer banks. And Turrell County is due east of Mania, but you have to go through mainland Dare County first, which is now mostly the Alligator River Refuge. Even by car, that trip's gonna take a long time. By car and boat, in the 40s, you're talking about a full day to get your groceries, to get your Pepsi Cola. So, I mean, it's not an exaggeration. I mean, it's a completely different life here in this clip.
3: Yeah, well, and what was interesting to me, too, seeing how far it took just to do that, there were, while I was visiting, there were some parts, you know, of the Outer Banks that I was interested in driving driving to and visiting. And, you know, for Manio, if you drive just to East, then you end up in nags head and then going further south there are some of the more historic areas there's the cape hatteras national seashore and things and you know from these oral histories it's like oh i'm interested i want to go down and see these places and then seeing a map and realizing it's a one-way road each way and it's a three-hour drive and on a weekend it can be even longer because that's when when tourists are coming to the region and so, even today, in some in some ways, it can feel a bit remote trying to get to get to these places that mile wise are not necessarily very far, but still, just the infrastructure put into place and the amount of of traffic on those roads still makes it kind of hard to get get to some of these regions. And maybe something that the people who live there enjoy, and they like having a slightly more isolated um, kind of little community as well, and that that's really great for them. And for me, it was something of oh, I don't. Do I do I have enough gas in my tank if I have to sit sit just like in traffic for three and a half four hours like can, can I make this trip But yeah, it's a really it's really interesting even today to see some of that.
2: And there are parts of that road that are so narrow that you can see the water on both sides within a few feet
3: of mm-hmm. the road.
2: I mean, mm-hmm. they literally took the entire area available to make the road to get down to the rest of the island. It's an amazing drive if you've never done it, but it is a long drive.
1: Yeah, I think maybe do it during not tourist season.
3: <laughs> yeah.
1: Might My wife and that.
2: I have gone during winter, uh, and it's still beautiful in winter, and it's not nearly as crowded.
1: <laughs> yeah, I think that might be the answer there. And it's, it's just fascinating to me to think about, like, Wilmington to, to the Outer Banks, to Manio, for example. It's almost faster to go from Wilmington to Raleigh to Manio than to go try to go up the coast. And that to me, it just illustrates, they're both coastal and yet at the same time, it just illustrates the difficulty of travel in that region, you know, and it's not, it's not obvious to an outsider, but if you're doing oral history, you're learning about it, you're getting that the geography and then you're sitting in it, it becomes very obvious.
3: <laughs> yes.
1: <laughs> so what about the other things that the, the Outer Banks does that, that you were a part of or that you, you weren't a part of but saw happening?
3: Some of the other things that I was able to be a part of included creating a small display. Um, using the John Wilson papers so once I'd finished processing those materials then I was able to take some of his materials on the celebration of America's 400th anniversary because that happened in the 1980s from 84 to 87 um, it was big both for the state but particularly for Manuel and the Outer Banks region and they really used it as a, a means of revitalizing through tourism the area so I was able to create a display in a multi-shelf cabinet that we had in the reading room Um, that was just sitting empty and I was able to take materials and use those to create an exhibit so that when we have patrons coming in in sort of the lobby there's one exhibit there for them but then if they come into the reading room there's another exhibit that they can look at and so that was really nice for me because I've had a few internships in other libraries and now in an archive and every time I've wanted to make an exhibit and it's never quite worked out, whether it's timing or just the materials I'm with don't lend themselves well. So I was really excited that that my last week I was able to go through that process and to create, create an exhibit. I was also able my last week to record an oral history, which meant that everything I had learned my very first week when I was listening to oral histories and saying like, Oh, that's really hard to understand. Or Ooh, why the mic seems really far away. Some of those things I was able to remember and recall those as I was working then on this, this oral history. Um, and that was actually an oral history with uh, Michael Daniels who's part of the Daniels seafood empire. Um, that really was, uh, it's a multi-generational process that really his father brought as a national seafood supplier, um, and I mean, they had seafood operations as far far south as Chile, and had exclusive rights to a certain type of mussel that they could gather off the coast there. It was it was really interesting oral history for one thing, but then it also was uh, a good kind of full circle moment for me because that was one of the very last things that I worked on. So those are some of the projects that I was able to do or tangentially related projects. Um, some of the other things, though, that happened at the or- at the Outer Rings History Center wow. while I was there included like a lot of reference visits. You'll have people who walk up wanting to do family genealogy, and sometimes we can help with that and have the records. Sometimes we don't have the records. A lot of photo requests come in for houses, and the question, do you have a picture of my house, which really depends on the house. Um, that was actually something nice about the John Wilson Papers because most of what he did was working on houses in Manio. And then he would often take pictures or do drawings of the houses. We now can answer, I think, that question in the affirmative more when people want a picture of their house in Manio. So that was really nice. Um, So a lot of people wanting to know, because they have a historic home, do you have a picture of of my house in the 20s? And then something interesting, too, that happened, we had um, someone doing a documentary come in, who is working on a documentary about Daniel Seafood Company, actually, and a lot of Wan Cheese history? Because my impression, my understanding is that people from Wan Cheese they work really hard, and they work really hard. And there's not necessarily a lot of things that bring people like tourists to Wan Cheese to gain more national attention. But um, people in Wan Cheese like developing this national seafood corporation. Um, yeah, seafood corporation it doesn't get documented as much. And so this particular filmmaker was really interested in having more documentation of the history of Wan cheese of the, the boating and the fishing industry there, because there were a lot of boat builders as well in Wan cheese. And so that was really interesting to see and to have him come in and start working on that documentary and kind of setting up a relationship with the Otter Banks history center. um, So that when he, he comes back and as he continues to make this series of like YouTube videos for his documentary, you know, he can come back and he already kind of is learning the collection. We know a little bit about him and what he's most interested in so that we can better assist him with his reference needs. So that was really, really fun and interesting to see and to watch, watch how that happened. There were also some acquisitions that came in while I was there. And so getting to see that process, working on creating a donor agreement um, and just what all, what all it takes to say like, yes, we can take these materials versus um, we had sometimes people coming with physical objects which as an archive we don't keep and having that like tough conversation of yes this is really interesting or yes this is a historically relevant material but unfortunately our collection policy does not allow us to take that and trying to help them perhaps find somewhere else that might be able to take an actual physical object so those were all really interesting things that my colleagues were working on while I was there that I got to to shadow or to learn a little bit about in the process speaking of donors as well i actually had the good fortune of getting to meet my donor so meeting john wilson at the end of the process so that was nice because i was working on the finding aid and it allowed me to go to him with a few questions that i had as well and to just learn a little bit more about some of the choices he made for instance you know he was the mayor in the 80s during the 80s they worked on the manio 20 year plan and then 20 years later it happens that he was re-elected mayor. And so I wondered if there was a connection and then you know, he was able to affirm, he's like, no, I did that intentionally. I wanted to come back when we were making the next 20 year plan and to be able to continue and shape and adapt some of the things that they had initially planned. So so that was really, really interesting and really meaningful to get to, to also meet with my donor after I had gone through the collections, which of course is only a luxury if your donor is still living and it's not perhaps family members who have donated the collection. So that was also a really really interesting and meaningful part of understanding donor relations and and donor agreements as well.
1: We'll take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll hear more about Jonna's internship and we'll hear about her interactions with the Wilson Papers specifically.
0: Hey, Deshaun, do you have any plans for Black History Month?
1: No. You know of any events coming up? I sure
0: do. The annual African-American Cultural Celebration event at the North Carolina Museum of History. Mark your calendar for Saturday, January 28th from 1030 to 430. This year's theme is Pathways to Freedom, to learn, to vote, to build. Oh, tell me more about it. Well, it's an annual event. It will be the 22nd year that this celebration has been going on, and it serves as the statewide kickoff to Black History Month in North Carolina. Will they have stuff for kids? Yes. It's for the entire family, from the little bitties all the way up to your grandparents. It's a celebration for everyone. It brings together African American community members, organizations, authors, artists, musicians, filmmakers, scholars, and more from around the state. Oh, so I'm assuming this will be in person and not virtual. Yes, both. It will have a virtual education day event on Thursday, January 26th from 9 a.m. until two thirty p.m. So go to the North Carolina Museum of History's website and sign up. I'm so excited that this main event will be back in person this year. That's great. I will add this to my family calendar and send it out to all my friends as well. I'll see you there. Oh, and don't forget to visit the North Carolina State Archives to research your family's history and to learn more about North Carolina's history. Thanks for listening. Now back to the show.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it was a real comprehensive internship. I mean, you know, you're doing all sorts of work from refoldering to, you know, meeting people, interviewing and, and getting a, a real sense of how i think an archives uh, uh, with a, with a lowercase a should ideally work and that's you know you, you donor relations and at the same time when somebody comes in asking for something you know having that strong relationship learning about the collection but also learning about the researcher you know in the case of that documentary filmmaker it can be helped streamlined in, in the future and more efficient. I think that's great. You know, and so you mentioned your work with Wilson and how you got to speak with him. And at the beginning of this discussion, you talked, you gave some depth about that, but I was kind of wondering if you'd like to go into a little bit more detail on why exactly this collection was chosen for this internship.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, through the interview process for the internship itself, the director asks questions a little bit about just what are your interests, um, because while the Utterbanks History Center has done a really good job of getting through a lot of its backlog, it's an archive and there will always be backlog. There will always be collections that still need processing. Um, so through that interview process, I think the director uses that a little bit to also kind of figure out perhaps prior experience, academic interests things like that in determining a collection. And then ultimately, I think the John Wilson papers were chosen for two reasons. I think one of them was because it was a rather large collection. It's perhaps the second largest collection that we have now. Um, In the History Center. And so having just a single dedicated person who didn't have other demands, didn't necessarily have multiple hats that they were wearing and projects they needed to work on. I think that was really appealing. So at least that, you know, it could get folded. So we knew what we had and kind of where it was. So it could be used in a soft way, perhaps with researchers. But then I think the other reason, too, is that it has immediate research value and immediate research value in quite a few different aspects of the region um, and just of different topics. So it's really helpful for Manio history. Uh, like I've mentioned, Manio changed a lot starting in the 80s. And what you see today is really because of John Wilson being mayor in Manio and his own particular interests and his his work as a mayor and then commissioner and again as a mayor. And so I think anyone wanting to really research Manio needs access to those papers and would be interested in them. It's also for people in North Carolina or just in general who are really interested in the workings of local government, because there is a lot of material, a lot of meeting notes, just a lot that you can glean on. This is just how small local governments actually function on a day-to-day basis and try to get things done locally and then perhaps on a larger scale when it's something like America's 400th anniversary that has national and international attention. It's also really helpful for people interested in historic preservation and ecological conservation, particularly in the Outer Banks, since those were two projects that Wilson was heavily involved in through both his professional work as an architect and through different boards and committees that he served on. And it's also really for architects. I think it's a really valuable collection. John Wilson actually started out as a draftsman for the architect for the U.S. Capitol. So he has some of this like very large-scale experience. He worked for an architecture firm in D.C. for a long time, but then also worked on a lot of these local historic buildings within within Manio and the Outer Banks region. And so I think for architects and particularly architects interested in historic preservation, it's a very useful collection. So I think that was one of the biggest reasons for why why work through John Wilson's papers is there are so many different patrons who might be interested in using it, and you know if it's not processed even minimally, no one can access that. But even even minimal processing allows us to to let patrons look at and begin to use those materials.
1: Yeah, for sure, and it doesn't hurt that he's still there and can you know, comment on things as needed.
3: Right, exactly, exactly. And we he still has some materials that I think in the next few years will be coming to us by way of blueprints. And then he does have a lot of photographs as well of Manio throughout the past 20, 30 years. And so I think also wanting to be able to, to add those materials to the collection. It can be helpful if you say... To a to a donor, look. We have we've already we've processed the materials you've given us. We're not just letting them sit on a shelf in a corner where no one can access them. Um, that can be helpful then when you're hoping to get additional materials from from a donor to say no. We've already processed these. They matter. They're really valuable. We want we want to keep keep adding to them.
2: I've got a bit of an odd question. And if you drew, drew blueprints. Was he also an artist of some kind? Like, did he leave behind any artwork in the collection?
3: Yeah, yeah. No, that's a really great question. That was actually one of my favorite parts of going through his materials was because he was a really big doodler. And so he made some comment when I visited him about You know, to a 27-year-old, sometimes meetings can get really boring when, you know, everyone is much, much older than you um, and things. And so he doodled a lot in some of his meeting notes. He did drawings as well for... Well, so for instance, the town of Manio, when I say Manio, really looks the way it does because of of John Wilson. I'm not exaggerating because even the town's like official seal is John Wilson's drawing and his handwriting. Many of the signs that you'll see on the main road going through Manio, those are signs that he designed and that that's his handwriting. He had a couple different styles he could do that were all very beautiful. And even the way like for instance the McDonald's looks in in Manio was a direct result of Wilson working with kind of the corporate architects of of McDonald's to say, you know, we want to not lose that small town feel. So we want to work with you. So it's, you know, it's a wood shingled McDonald's. It has a small and short sign that fits in with all of the others. In addition to, to architect and some interesting designs that he got to help with, he was, he was a doodler. He was an illustrator. There are some, well, for instance, in the exhibit that I have that I made, there's a, a rendering of what is now Festival Park and its visitor center, but at the time was being considered to be just an Elizabeth II for the ship, the the historic replica that that is moored in Shallow Bag Bay, right by the history center. There's a drawing of what that center might look like, and um, in color that he did, and so. That was really delightful because there wasn't ever a section of drawings. Um, But as I went through, I'd find them in notes or attached to some of the houses in some different preservation guides or short histories that he was working on for the area. I would come across a lot of those illustrations that were really delightful surprises as I went through the collection.
2: He's an architect, an artist, a commissioner, a mayor, a, a thinker. I mean, he's really the Outer Banks Renaissance man.
3: Absolutely,
2: absolutely. The most, You know that old meme, the world's most interesting man? Well, he's the <laughs> he was most interesting man with all these different absolutely. hats that he wore.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah, I, I think given that he is such an interesting person that, you know, maybe there's not a whole lot of surprises in the collection. But I'll ask you, did anything kind of pop out either? Maybe it was in the processing. I don't know, but it could be in the collection or the processing. Anything that pop out that was a sort of a surprise to you?
3: Oh, that's a good question. I think... So one of the things that surprised me, I was processing part of um, some of his architectural materials... And I was looking at blueprints for this this house that was designed as intern housing for Festival Park, um, because early in Festival Park's history they had a robust intern program, and I was looking at it and I was like, this is interesting. And then I was looking at the street corner that it was positioned on and the street names, and I was like, wait a minute, I know where this is. You know, it's like. Visually, I can tell you where things are in Manio, but I can't necessarily, rec- like, recognize all the street names. But I was like, no, I know these names. And then I was like, wait a minute, this is where I live for my internship right now. And so, I and I had no idea that he was the person who had designed that. Um, and so, it was really interesting, you know, going through and seeing all of the the designs for the room. Because I had always just assumed that this building was a hotel that they converted into guest rooms. Because, you know... You're on an island. You have a guest house that has lots of rooms that, you know, magically, you know, are all kind of the same size. It just I was like, oh, I bet that's what they did. And then I came to find out that the person whose papers I was processing, no, he actually like specifically designed this for interns to live in. And so that was really cool and a very nice like personal connection. Which in general, all of these connections, the things, you know, I was learning about the McDonald's or the Manio Town logo, this this community housing, um, I was able to share that with the people, the other interns that I was living with in the house. And that was really fun as well, because many of them were working together either at the Coastal Studies Institute or at the aquarium that's on, on the island. And so, you know, they had things in common, they had things from work to talk about, and then it's just me at the archive. And so it was really fun to be able to share with them like, Oh, hey, you know, that thing you drive by every day, like, I can tell you why it looks that way. And so and they all they all really loved Manio. Many of them are repeat returners to Manio. And so they really enjoyed getting to learn some of that history. So that was nice to be able to share with them. I was also kind of surprised it was weird, like personal connections that kept coming up with his papers as I was just foldering them and kind of calling and and taking out extraneous things. So, for instance, he had a map of Boston from the 80s that happened to like just barely include the street that I live on in Boston. Whereas today, if you go to a visitor bureau, (laughs) where I live is not on the map anymore. Um, It doesn't quite make the cut. And so that was like really interesting to see. And I was like, oh, huh. And I was going through another time architectural files for the band shell that we have on Festival Park for the music festivals. And there were a few photographs in it. And I looked at them. I was like, this looks an awful lot like someplace I already know. And then as I am continue going through, it's, oh, this is the Lake Harriet band shell in Minneapolis. And I did my undergraduate studies close by to Minneapolis. And so I had spent time walking around that Bandshell and kayaking in that lake past it. And I was like, how does this happen? And then very near the end, this was the weirdest connection to me, I think, is that he had a box of, letters and things and it was just a personal you know he had gotten something shipped and I looked at the return address and the return address was to a place in Fort Worth Texas and that's where I grew up and that's where I had taught high school before and I was just you know of all the places in the world for a box to have been sent to John Wilson it was a strange strange thing to see so there were lots of like little connections to where I have lived that managed to surface Um, I've lived in DC before as well and he studied there did his master's degree there as well so seeing some of his like DC work and things I was like I don't I don't imagine this happens with every collection that you process but it was it was kind of fun to see every few weeks something would pop up
1: yeah, yeah, following John Wilson around, it sounds like.
3: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: Any other insights?
3: Yeah, well, so something that was interesting to me is that, so one of the first courses that I took in my program, in my master's program, was about information organization. We sometimes cheekily call it metadata, but it's it's how do you create the records for library and archival holdings. And the professor for that course her personal research is about personal information organization. Um, and she's she's one of the leading voices on the topic, which was really interesting because I didn't even know it was a topic really to have a leading voice on. And so that was one of the very first things that we as a class discussed and had to had to post about online was about like our personal organization principles and what how do we store our own personal data like on our computer how do we organize our files do we organize anything or is it all just you know a black hole on our computer so it was interesting looking at that and thinking back to that class and then going through a collection where you could very clearly see that there was a personal organizational system that either started out, like for his architectural files, you can tell he had a system that he mostly stuck to throughout the different decades of being an architect. And then other times you could see that process evolving. For instance, his early mayor materials are not organized in the same way that when he was reelected mayor in the 2000s, it was organized. And so it was really interesting to see sort of that evolution. And also very comforting, I think, to see someone who is so accomplished as John Wilson, who wore so many different hats, who needed so much organization that like, no, this is a process that even for him, it evolved the organization. Sometimes there didn't seem to be much organization or a system that started out strong and then wasn't always followed and then was reborn into something new. And so that was kind of comforting to see that it's not, that not everyone is super, super organized, always in their files. And the rest of us, you know, are just very chaotic and messy in how we organize our materials. It was another very unexpected kind of connection back to something I had done in my coursework, seeing it like practically play out and then seeing how that how personal organization systems and the adherence or lack of adherence to them actually influences then how I myself as an archivist am going to process, folder, and then later organize materials that I receive. So
2: I think that this is actually a good time for a little archive science tidbit. Do, 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 do. So what Jana is describing here is a term that we archivists use, evidentiary value. So when you're doing research in collections, typically as a listener, dear listeners, you're doing research in archives, you're looking for informational value. You're looking for the actual information that is in a record. You know, in this case, like, for example, in in his papers, you're seeing, oh, he suggested McDonald's change the dimensions to fit Manio's structural requirements. That's the information in the document. But evidentiary value tells you about how something worked, how an organization worked, how the town of Manio worked, or in this case, how an individual person worked. So it's not the information itself in this case, but John is able to gather the information about his various aspects of life and how he organized his life through how he changed and organized and didn't organize his papers. So sometimes... It's just as important to see that layer of value to archives, the evidentiary layer, as it is the informational layer. So when you hear us archivists say evidentiary value, that's what we mean. And that's been Today in Archive Science. Well,
3: and Josh, when you talk about that as well, it... It makes me think of um, the idea of original order and whether we keep materials in the exact order that we receive them, because that was something that I was talking a lot with with my director when I was first going through the collection. You know, how much original order do you keep? You know, are you super, super original, archival, old school about it? And you're like, the exact order it came in is the exact order it stays in, um, even if there's not a lot of sense that anyone can make out of that order or do you as the archivist come in and shape that order a little bit more so that for a researcher it's easier for them to make sense of materials and so i think that was that was also something that i grappled with and really reflected on throughout the process because sometimes the original order seemed to make a lot of sense and then other times me the person trying to process it couldn't make sense of that that original order and then trying to understand how far to stray from that original order and and keeping the researcher in mind as well and how much use they get out of different orderings of the materials.
1: Yeah. So what did you end up doing? Where did you end up falling on that side, on, on that coin?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. It depends, which I feel like is an answer you give a lot in archives, or at least my professors give that when we ask them questions like, well, it depends. You know, sometimes I think it seemed really clear, for instance, looking at the architectural files for a particular project that might actually be split between like financial records and one file for a house, and then like plats, which are some of the earlier blueprints, and then just like correspondence. For those, if it was really clear, like, hey, this financial record got put in a different folder and is not with the financial materials, it's important to bring that back. But then there were other times. When, for instance, I was looking at his, like, mayor and commissioner materials, where it was really rather unclear why something from, like, April 1984 was in the materials for his, like, June 1984 meetings, but because you might have a need to refer back to something that was decided in an earlier meeting, earlier in the year, or because you might be referencing that for a new precedent that you're setting in a different case or a different plan that you're creating— Those I generally tended to leave. And so, you know, you might as a researcher go into June 1984 and there might be materials that are dated from an earlier month, but are still tied directly to board, board actions, because based on the amount of time I had to process the materials, the amount of materials I had to work through, and also because going through everything at that item level was kind of beyond the scope of my project, I didn't end up making some of those changes. So it sort of depended where I was like, I can clearly see this should belong with these other materials versus it's unclear why these materials might have gotten mixed. So I'm going to leave that original order. So it, it really depended on the situation.
2: And it's interesting you say that because within government records, which we have a lot of those similar kind of records over here that he would have been involved with not as much for municipalities, but we have a lot of those for counties and uh, things like that, state agencies that have minutes. We tend to do the same thing. So if there's you know records of a, a meeting within records of another meeting, we try to keep it there because it's mm-hmm. it tells you that they discussed this event again or they're going back to it again. And it's part of the discussion of that meeting. It goes to that evidentiary value. Now, if it's clear, like you said, where it's like, we'll separate a a series if it's clearly two different things. We just did this with opposite side of the state. We're recently finished processing the estates records for Haywood County, and half of what they called estates, which are records dealing with people when they pass away, their properties and inventories, were actually guardians records, people being appointed as guardians for minors. And so we clearly we separated those because they're clearly two different series that were just boxed together by Haywood County. But for mm-hmm. the proceedings and things like that, we tend to keep the order exactly as it is we receive it to reflect that order. So, yeah, I agree. It, from, from our angle for government records, it depends is also the right answer.
3: That, that makes me feel good. Then That makes me feel better about the choices I made. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, that was great. So um, we've talked a lot about about the collection. I think we really got an understanding of what's in the collection, who John Wilson was, your interaction with it, who you are. But I wanted to know, you know, so this collection and then the oral histories we talked about earlier, how can researchers sort of access these collections?
3: So I don't know yet when the finding aid for the John Wilson papers will be on the Utterbanks History Center website, but that should be very soon. It does not yet have an accession number assigned. Um, We had some administrative changes at the History Centre while I was there, and so the person that we had who could assign an accession number um, is working somewhere else. So we're waiting on people in Raleigh now. So maybe you can talk to somebody about that to get an accession number. And then like once we have that accession number, then it'll be um, searchable through any of the the North Carolina um, state archives um, search engines. But for now, if you go to the Outer Banks History Center website, that finding aid should be available on that website very soon. And then the oral histories though, they are all processed and have accession numbers on the website. So, you know, searching for Stanley Beachum, if you want David Stick, there are David Stick interviewing people, um, but also interviews with him as well. And then the Michael Daniels is being processed and will come up, will be put online shortly as well. So those are all very searchable and are fully in the system. The John Wilson papers right now are just as a finding aid accessible through the Outer Banks History Center's website or you can always call the Outer Banks History Center as well. Perhaps it's somewhat old-fashioned means or can feel old-fashioned, but it's it's an archive, so why not? And so you can also just call and ask, ask about that or ask to see that, that finding aid too.
2: Yeah, I was gonna make sure I emphasize to folks that just because you might not live within dr- driving distance of Manio on a regular basis doesn't mean you can't find help with this. Just like us here in Raleigh and the folks at Western Regional. Contact the folks in at the Outer Banks History Center if you have an interest in any of their collections, and they can certainly help prepare you for a visit so you don't have to go in there multiple times. Or if you have a very specific request, like I want to see this one blueprint from this collection, they might be able to do it for you remotely. Don't think that just because you don't live in the Outer Banks that that's an impediment to using these materials. They're, they want to help you. We all do.
3: Well, and I'll say too, as I'm sure it is in in Raleigh and all all of the archives across the state, I'm super impressed just with the amount of knowledge that the other archivists have of the collections and even at really granular levels for the photographs and things. And so if you do call ahead or, or send a reference email asking about it, giving them even just an afternoon to think about it, they're likely to come up with all of these other ideas of, oh, if you're interested in that, I bet you'd like this material from this collection. And their reference skills there are really, really outstanding, I think. And so talking with them ahead of time so they can pull even more things that you may have never thought of can be really helpful, too.
1: Yeah, I think, yeah. Um, I mean, I know that those folks out there are, are terrific folks. Same with the people in Western Regional. Um, so grab a Pepsi Cola and come on down and and do some research in, in, in both, in all three of our archives. At this point, I want to thank uh, uh, Josh and Jana for being guests on today's program. Yeah,
3: thank you,
1: John. Very welcome. Thank you. Very welcome. And uh, thank you, Jonna, again, for not only connecting the docs with us with the Wilson papers, uh, but for also bringing a little slice of the Outer Banks to the rest of us and for giving us an insight into your internship. We appreciate the stellar work that you did and best of luck moving forward. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into another production of Connecting the Docks. Stay tuned for upcoming episodes on folk music in Western North Carolina, Mountain Speak, and the life of Abraham Galloway. Special thanks to our guests, Shauna Purchase and Josh Hager, to our producers, Brooke Chuka and Shawna Carr, and to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Ellen Dotson.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docks make sure to visit our website connectingthedocs.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, You might want to check out our blog, History for All the People, at ncarchives.wordpress.com.